0: It's Austin Horton. Thanks for tuning in to the EP podcast. Today is a throwaway Thursday edition, meaning that we've just got a few odds and ends to talk about. Not too long of a show each week on Thursday, but we do have a special fun guest for you coming up uh, later in the show. Mike Snar, friend of the station, friend of the program, and a uh, longtime employee of the Utah Jazz on the marketing side of things. He has written a book. And I thought it would be—it was apt and and good timing—to speak with him about memories of the Utah Jazz, as he calls it, golden era, those final years. Now that that last dance documentary is in the rearview mirror, Uh, we'll we'll get Mike's thoughts on that, and he'll share a story that I had never heard before about the time a jazz scouting report was stolen and published. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about uh, what Jerry Sloan's unbelievable reaction to that was. And uh, we just want to start today with some thoughts and love going to the Sloans. Uh, Jerry and his kids and his family, his wife and her kids. Uh, we understand from Carmelo Malone last Sunday that uh, Coach Sloan is not in great shape and we need to pray for him and his family and give our love and support to them at this time. And uh, the, it, you know, we all feel like Coach Sloan is a family member. I'm lucky to enough. I'm lucky enough to have met him a few times, and I got to tell you, when they say don't meet your heroes, they weren't talking about Jerry Sloan. The guy is a phenomenal person. So uh, thoughts and prayers go out to the Sloans at this time. Uh, we do have to talk about uh, some college football news and notes before we get to Mike, though. So let's get started. But before we go there, it's time for this day in sports history on the EP podcast. May 21st, 1989, Rusty Wallace won the Winston after, uh, that's NASCAR's all-star race, by the way, after spinning out Darrell Waltrip with two laps to go and sending his Tide-sponsored car sliding across the grass. The so-called Tide Slide caused a fight between the driver's pit crews and prompted Waltrip to say that he hoped Wallace, quote, choked on his winnings from the race. Pretty crazy uh, historical moment there as a... Is an all star game essentially when that took place. 1932, May 21st, Amelia Earhart landed in a cow pasture in Colmore, Northern Ireland, becoming the first woman to fly solo non stop across the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, May 21st, 2009, Denver Nuggets forward Carmella Anthony scored 34 points, beating the Lakers 106 103 at the Staples Center to even the Western Conference Finals at one game apiece. That was the first Nuggets playoff win against the Lakers in 24 years. However, Denver would fall on the series in six games. There you go. This day in sports history right here on the EP podcast. Will they or won't they have a college football season? Big discussion today uh, going around to, as the report came out on the financial toll that NCAA uh, programs and athletic departments would take if there is not a football season. This is coming from Mark Schlebaugh and Paula Levine at ESPN.com. As more and more college athletic departments cut sports programs, the financial wreckage due to the coronavirus pandemic is becoming devastatingly clear. And that's without factoring in a $4 billion loss. If the 2020 football season is canceled, a development that would forever alter college level sports, they write uh, university systems have suffered hundreds of millions of dollars in losses thus far which could grow significantly as decisions are made about whether to return students to campuses this fall. We know what it costs the uh, NCAA and all of its programs and departments to not have March Madness. That's, I'm assuming, the biggest reason why you're seeing a lot of these sports canceled uh, across the country, because it goes football number one for probably 90% of the uh, athletic departments out there, basketball number two. Of course, there's those that are basketball schools, so-called, that'll flip that. But uh, I wanted to read you a couple quotes here from former Utah State athletic director and now over there at Oregon State, Scott Barnes. He was quoted in this piece as saying, anywhere from 75 up to almost 85% of all revenues to our departments are derived directly or indirectly from football. Indirectly, I mean sponsorship dollars, multimedia rights, and then you've got your gate, your donations and whatnot. The impact of not playing a season is devastating. It would rock the foundation of intercollegiate athletics the way we know it. Frankly, I'm not trying to solve for that because it would be such a devastating circumstance that we'd almost have to get a whiteboard out and start over. That is, again, Scott Barnes, current athletic director at Oregon State, formerly with Utah State and, I believe, Pitt uh, after between Utah State and his current stop in Oregon State. of the revenue to the departments comes from football. So if if you don't play one season of college football, we already saw just one tournament. One March Madness tournament cancellation has cost a lot of schools their baseball programs, their uh, lacrosse, the, the Olympic sports are suffering already, getting cut, getting reduced, getting canceled. Uh, across the board because of just that if you then lose a season of college football four billion dollars goes down the drain and i think scott burns is right i think you're going to see i, I don't know this is just an absolute guess but half of division one would probably have to sit out a year or two to get back into the game if not they'd be out forever you, you would see the power five schools probably going to be fine the tops of the of the group of five might survive. Everybody else, it's going to be a long time before they're able to get a, a program going again. And that by program, I mean athletic program. So $4 billion on the line. But I, I like this phrase that keeps being put out there by a lot of talking heads. Let's make sure that data and not dates is determining when we and how we return to society fully. Is there a way to have a college football season without uh, you know uh, packing the stadiums, having the tailgate experience? Can it still be the same? Can, do, will you have to maybe reduce your, your number of uh, players and coaches that travel? Will, will you be able to even have people in the stands if you you know keep little pockets of them around uh, away from each other? I think there is, and I think that's why we are going to see college football play. But it's kind of like uh, rolling the dice because you don't want another wave to begin because of college football. You, you want to find a way to uh, – you would like to find a way to have no more outbreak of the COVID, of the pandemic. But if it's going to happen, you'd like to reduce it, minimize it, and make sure that things can continue on and pray that no one dies because one death is one too many and uh but at the same time just it, it's death is the worst outcome of the pandemic that does not mean it's the only negative outcome there are people without work there are people whose jobs depend on that 4 billion dollars happening from college football and they their lives matter the same as someone uh, who actually has contracted the disease uh, the virus so uh, we'll have to just keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. But that is out there, $4 billion on the line if there's no college football season. Along those lines, athletic director for U- University of Utah, I should say, Mark Harlan, was on with Hanson Scotty, And he had a lot of uh, interesting quotes and comments. You can check that interview out at 1280thezone.com in its entirety. But I wanted to share just a, a bite here. He, he was asked uh, if there's been any positive uh, results, if there's been any student athletes who have actually contracted the COVID nineteen virus,
1: we have had a few student athletes uh, upon exiting here that uh, did test positive. All of whom are absolutely fine, and um, you know, very uh, very glad that they are okay. Um, but if you consider the totality of our department and as many student athletes, you know, we feel very blessed uh, to 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 not have, uh, you know, more than that, I guess. Um, you know, of course for us losing a giant and Bob Garf, uh, it's just been, you know, a tragedy that we're still trying to come to terms with. Of course, he and his family had donated the the necessary funding on our stadium expansion. And so we're, we're still kind of reeling from that, but in terms of our students and our staff, uh, Uh, we've been we've been uh, somewhat lucky it's
0: very good to hear that those that did contract the virus have made a full recovery and are doing fine it's also interesting to note that there have been positive uh cases within the athletic department with student athletes and staffers and if it happened then and happened now it could certainly happen uh, when they're back around each other and now i don't know if this you know Uh, when when they're back around each other, packed in stadiums or at practices or on a bus or an airplane or in a hotel room, these things, that's how you share stuff is you, it's proximity driven. You sneeze, you cough, you uh, breathe too heavy and vapors enter the air droplets, fall on something. You pick up those droplets, put it in your body. And now you've got the virus too. Uh, It's a delicate, fragile situation. And I am so grateful that I am not in the position of powers uh, but to make these decisions and have that rest on my head and on my conscience. Along those lines, former Utah defensive lineman uh, Christian Cox was on the big show this week, and they asked him straight up if he were a player right now, would he be comfortable playing a football season?
1: Christian, how would you feel if you were an active player right now? And given the circumstances with COVID-19 and all that, would you feel comfortable uh playing under these circumstances and let's say you could live at home and do it would you worry about uh you know spreading it to your family or how would you feel would you think about it when you were on the field or would you be able to block it all out and just business as usual no you're one of the best you ask the toughest questions oh gordon uh Personally, you know, we just had an infant, so my perspective has changed a little bit. You know, obviously in the news and media, hey, this this virus is for older people, but you know, we had a we had to take our son briefly to primary children's before COVID hit because he had RSV and pneumonia, so we were forced to do quarantine before quarantine really hit. And so, my perspective, it, I my mindset was always, you know, pretty lackadaisical and loose. But having a baby and having a wife and having kids, like you don't want to take any risks. Right. Uh, and it also to the question, it also to determine where I am at in my career, if I'm at the end of my career and I've already made money, sure. Uh, if I'm trying to make a team, you, you, you gotta weigh the risks and, um, you know, depending on where things are in the fall. And, uh, you know, I, if I was in dire circumstances, I would try to find a way to the field. Right. Uh, but if it's going to put my family in at jeopardy and at risk and depending on where the numbers were and, potential death rates and the hotspots, all that data or whatever uh, would kind of tie into that. But for me, it's, we've, uh, I'm, you know, it's kind of funny. It's, you know, people, it's a really political thing. Now it's like, if you're wearing a mask, is that politicized? Are you, are you not, you know, like it's, are you wearing a mask? Is that a bad thing or a good thing? Uh, I wear a mask and gloves and try to take care of what I can. And we have low numbers here in the state. Um, A lot of my clients, are in manhattan and in new jersey and in philadelphia and so i know how impacted they are so it's just the weirdest the weirdest disease and i'm sure you have a better perspective on this gordon it's just never seen anything like it just shutting down the economy shutting everything down and now it feels like a confusing reopening on what's what's the right normal and how should we all behave and and perform and You hope, we all hope, you know, that things are getting better. People, you know, on the front line are getting, you know, the support that they need, but that we can, you know, proceed, you know, cautiously and in the right manner for sports because, right, this has impacted everyone, right? You know, what are the things you guys are going to talk about every day, it's tough. And uh, it just goes to show uh, there's some sports that aren't as important, but there are some others that you really miss and you wish that we were playing
0: christian cox there uh i think that's exactly the way i would answer it as well depends on where i'm at in my career if if i'm established and i'm okay i'd probably sit it out if i am a, a borderline practice squad guy trying to carve my way i would have to really think about do i have a shot to make this my livelihood to make this a long time career or should i hang it up now and live through the memories? Uh, the rest of my life rather than create more well but that's the dilemma that i believe a lot of kids a lot of uh people are going to have to face uh when they uh, go back to school this fall when the college football season rolls around when the nfl comes back is it worth it can it be done safely and what is the definition of safely that'll change from city to city county to county state to state it'll de- determine it'll change on region to region and it won't be an even playing field but i do think that it needs to happen if you can uh, minimize the damage, hopefully uh, find a way to get enough tests, to get enough uh, social distancing practices and procedures in place, to where if and when people do come down positive with COVID, they're able to recover quickly, safely, and have full, healthy lives, and uh, it won't just cost people. Lives and it won't cost people jobs either. Sorry for a bit of a a rain cloud way to start the Thursday edition of the EP podcast, but coming up right around the corner, my good friend Mike Snar is here to talk about the golden era of the Utah Jazz. Memories that uh, are bittersweet uh, as we uh, look back on the last dance documentary. The Utah Jazz did not play as major a role in that thing as a lot of people may have wanted or expected them to. Mike and I will take care of that with our own memories coming up next, right here on the EP podcast. As promised, uh, friend of the program, friend of the station, and Utah Jazz longtime employee and now author, Mike Snar, here with us on the EP podcast. Mike, it's good to talk to you once again. Everyone's still hanging in there at the Snar household, I assume.
2: We're do- we're doing fine, Austin. How- how's your family doing? Everybody okay?
0: Yeah, it's been it's been wild. We have a I don't know if you know this. We we just moved uh, about seven months ago from North Salt Lake up to Layton. And uh, our daughter is now, she'll be two in August, and so she's just all over the place all the time, constantly. <laughs> and I, it, it's, well, it, it, it amazes me, all these youngsters that uh, will never know what we've all been dealing with and going through at this time, and they're just happy as clams. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's,
2: it's a crazy time. We've got a two-year-old granddaughter, and um, she is uh, just a live wire and a handful and a, <laughs> a blast to be around. Yeah. and uh they've uh, her parents have their hands full too so i know what you're going through uh being sequestered like that um, that's a tough uh that's a tough uh, job right now
0: <laughs> and my, my wife was out of work for six weeks we're well, not out of work they they had uh, closed shop for six weeks and she was at home all day every day with the with the baby and the baby, she's almost two now, but she'll always be the baby, you know. And she right. she said, "I'll never regret having that time, but she was so grateful to go back to work and yeah. get back into society a little bit." But hey, for sure, we're we're here to talk about uh, the the jazz, the golden era, as it says in the subtitle of your book: "Long Shots and Layups: Memories and Stories from the Golden Era of the Utah Jazz." Now, in your in your description on Amazon, and I think it's on the book itself, from a self-proclaimed sports marketing junkie tell our audience <laughs> your background uh and how you came to work for the jazz was you you took a, a flying leap in the dark didn't you
2: oh well, i i sort of did yeah that's uh, it's sort of interesting how that came about i started out uh working for a tv station in marketing and uh, advertising and then i went to an advertising agency Fatheringham and associates and uh, that was a great experience and then i ended up doing uh uh marketing for a, a company uh called Triad America, which was uh, a big company here for a while. That um that company went bankrupt and uh, it was uh, it was an adnan Khashoggi uh owned company and it failed eventually. Uh he, he basically uh, couldn't fund it anymore and I was loose and the jazz contacted me and I thought what a that's a crazy idea. I love basketball, but I didn't ever think about working for a, a sports franchise. And so I thought about it and talked to my wife, who reminded me that I did not have a job. <laughs> and so uh, I met with Dave Checkitz and Larry Baum, and we uh, met for about 20, 30 minutes. And they said, Come and join us. And I did. So. It was a big turn, and it was uh, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful experience.
0: You you made a good choice. Uh, you had a lot of fun in your time uh, with the Utah Jazz, and then you were oh. you were there uh, through every every uh, foundational move and moment that uh, we know the Utah Jazz to be this day. Is owed to things that happened back then that you were there and and saw and witnessed from the basketball side and the marketing side, the behind the scenes, the in front of the cameras and radios. You were there for every step of it, and you share a lot of those stories in the book. But as we are just coming off the heels of the last dance series, I, I don't like to call it a, a documentary because I think it might imply there's more journalistic integrity than showed up in that thing. But uh, as we watched those those moments play out from the Bowles and Michael Jordan side of things, especially uh, episodes nine and ten, how how painful, if that's a good word, it was painful for me. How painful was it for you to oh. have to relive all that?
2: You know it was actually more painful than I thought it would be I uh, you know you think you'd be past it and um, and put it in perspective and and you need to do that but but still it was it was painful and I can understand why players I think John Stockton was uh, I think John was a little reluctant to even be interviewed and Carl didn't didn't volunteer to be interviewed and and i and i can see why it's just something that uh, when they can't when you come that close i mean they really had several opportunities that uh, a ball bounces a different way or or something happens at the reffing uh, a couple of uh, there were some definite bad calls that, that put us behind uh, in that 98 series that if they go the other way we probably win the series so the Jazz were so close. I mean, I really felt we were a lot closer than a four-two uh, final tally. Uh, they were in it all the way, except for one game, and they made a great comeback from that game uh, to almost uh, win the get back and win the series. So, I think it, it was painful.
0: Yeah, hey, uh, you, you mentioned the six games. You might look on paper at those two back-to-back finals and think, oh, six games, it wasn't that close of a series. And that's the that's what you get robbed of if you don't actually watch a series and how it plays out is a six-game series could be a landslide six-game, but that was, that was not the case. These two, the 97 and 98 finals, Mike, they were uh, as close to a seven-game-like series that you can get in a six-game series, in my opinion. They
2: really were. In fact, in 97, I think the Bulls scored four more points than we did in the six games. I wow. mean, it was that close. Ninety-eight score-wise, it wasn't that close because that one lopsided loss.
0: Jeez, yeah. and even then,
2: after if you take that game out, it's it's still a one or two point uh, win for each game uh, right to the right to the end. So, um, the great a great series really, and the TV ratings show it. I think I uh, I don't know if we, you and I talked about this, but the ninety-eight uh, series. Is the highest-rated, most watched NBA championship series in history, hmm. and no other series has come close to that. Uh, Twenty years later, in uh, in uh, in uh, 2018, it was um, it was a 20 um, 20 million household per game uh, rating compared to a 25 million household that watched the games in '98. So, wow! Uh, and you think about that. There's, there were there are fifty more, uh, fifty million more people in the United States now than there was twenty years ago. So, it's really remarkable. And and a lot goes to Jordan. I, I think the world was was kind of watching to see what Jordan did. But it was a great matchup with Stockton, Malone, Hornacek, and all the guys against uh, Pippen and and Jordan. Uh, and and it's still. I don't think it, it'll ever be beat. I don't think uh, 25 million people will ever watch a, an NBA championship series again. That's, it's, it goes down in history.
0: He's Mike Snarr, author of Long Shots and Layups, Memories and Stories from the Golden Era of the Utah Jazz. Now, along, as we're talking about, the, you mentioned John Stockton volunteering just a few short moments reluctantly for the Last Dance documentary. What have you heard from John over the years as he reflects on uh, the the memories he has of playing in those finals in 97 and 98?
2: Well, you know, John doesn't say a lot. <laughs> right. John doesn't talk a lot about... Uh, the series, I don't know if you've read his book, Assisted, which is a is a, is a really good book uh, that, that he wrote um, about his, it's a sort of a, uh, a biography, an autobiography of his life. He doesn't talk a lot about the finals, and I was interested in, when I read that, I really thought that he would maybe go game by game, but he just doesn't do that. And I think for that reason, it, it's a painful, it's a painful uh, memory, it was for me and you, and I'm sure it's a lot more for those guys because they came so close. But, um, um, you know, from my perspective, look what we did and look what that team did. Uh, yeah, we didn't win the championship. We didn't win the NBA championship. But <laughs> we we really uh, showed a lot of character, a lot of moxie, a lot of fight, and uh, a never-give-up attitude. And I think that's pretty special.
0: Yeah, I, I that's exactly why I think it's probably the most beloved runner-up team in sports history. It is uh, because yep. of the the way they played, the way they not as we learned, we learn, we knew it then, but we learn it year after year as stories keep coming out about just how much they were uh, hustling and competitive in practice and drills. And you write about moments in, in your book where they had to hold Stockton and Malone back from drills and practices yeah. <laughs> so that they could yeah. be ready for a game because they were taking it almost as though it were Game 7 every single day of the NBA Finals.
2: Right. Yeah, I think I told the – it's a great story about how John and Carl both get kicked out of practice by, <laughs> by Sloan, of, of all people, for working too hard. I had to send them to the showers because they, they overdid it. Go, go rest. Take it easy, so, fellas.
0: Yeah, this is just and, practice, and, and as you know, Allen Iverson would say, yeah.
2: Yeah, Uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot has been said about how Jordan uh, motivated his team. He got in their faces, got in fights, just did whatever he had to do. You know, Stock and Malone were uh, maybe approached it slightly differently, uh, but they were very, very keyed on the team winning, and they motivated those players. So I'll tell you uh, uh, two two quick things. One is... um, uh, the Jazz had uh, brought a, a player in, traded for him. He shows up for the first practice. I won't I won't mention his name uh, because he, he turned out to be a really valuable player for the Jazz and played into the finals. He was on the final teams. But his first practice, uh, he came from uh, another team that was not a playoff contender, and they were running laps, and he got tired and sat down. And uh, the next time around, John takes the team behind him and loops out around this player and <laughs> says something to him like, hey, are you okay? You, you, you look tired. And then the next time around, he says, hey, should you want me to call 911? How, how are you doing? And then the other, the other players started chipping in too, you know, with little comments to this guy. <laughs> 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 the, the trainer told me this story, and he said, that guy got in shape really quick. <laughs> he did not. Uh, he he knew he was playing for a different team now, and he realized uh, these guys were serious. Uh, the other thing that happened that I thought was kind of interesting is that uh, I, I heard that John and Carl, and maybe Jeff was part of this too, went to Jerry and said, "You know, we we, we you know we have these written scouting reports that the team does, and uh, we give to the players, but we really need to drill." the players. We need to have a Q&A and ask each player how are they going to guard this particular guy or what are they going to do in this situation because we want to make sure they're reading the the uh, scouting reports. Uh-huh. And so they started doing that. They started quizzing the players. So I think that in their own way, Stockton and Malone uh, as much as Jordan uh, really uh, drove, the, drove those championship teams
0: that's interesting about the scouting reports. Uh, I, I went on a, a road trip with the Orem Owls 100 years ago uh, and filled in on the play-by-play. And their uh, manager, Tom Kochman, in the Orm Owls, for those that may not know, uh, have been a, a rookie league, the lowest level of Major League Baseball that you, that you have. And uh, the, he, would, he had all these scouting reports that he'd put on the clubhouse wall, and it would show uh, spray charts where, the, where a batter would was want to hit the ball more often than not. And after the first game of that road trip, uh, they, they had lost, and he pulled him inside in the postgame of speech and just ripped all of them to shreds. The, the paint literally <laughs> ripped the scouting reports and said, I hope you took a good look at these today because I'm going to quiz you on them tomorrow. <laughs> and that's that's really important. To it's one thing to give someone the tools, but if they're not actually accessing them and using them, then why why use them at all? And you're not going to win a title with that. Now, speaking of scouting reports, you, men, you mentioned to me in a text message a story. I have no, I don't even. Re- Maybe you've told me this before, and I have forgotten it, but I don't recall the story of the stolen scouting report. What's that about?
2: Well, uh, very fascinating. Um, and Richard Smith, Smitty told me this story. He heads up scouting. And, Such a great person. And, uh, I love Smith. Uh, you know, it's an integral part of, of what the Jazz do. Anyway, he had written the scouting report for the, the first series, the 97 series, the uh, Bulls and the Jazz, and they had distributed it to the team, and uh, and they'd gone over it and reviewed it. And a couple days later, he gets his Sports Illustrated in the mail or maybe a week later, and gets his Sports Illustrated in the mail. Opens it, and, and the cover says "Complete Scouting Reports of of the Bulls." Uh, and he opens it up, or of the Jazz, and he opens it up, and it's his whole scouting report. Um, almost word, he said almost word for word. He said I couldn't believe it. Somehow it had leaked. He um, doesn't. To this day, they don't know how it happened. Uh, could have been left somewhere. Somebody could have picked it up, a report, or somebody got it, or. A, you know, sold it to somebody, uh, who knows. But it, there it was in Sports Illustrated. <laughs> and um, so uh, he calls Jerry in a panic and says, I can't believe this happened. And Jerry says, don't worry about it. We just got to play the game no matter what. Let's, we'll just go do that. So typical Jerry re- <laughs> Sloan response to uh, what some people would have thought was a, was a huge problem.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I I was just talking with a a radio station in South Carolina the other day, and they asked me why why I feel like uh, or why why they they feel like the Utah Jazz and the Jazz fan base is one of the most uh, a respected but b disliked entities in the NBA, especially back in the (laughs) mid and late '90s. And he asked me why I thought that would be, and the thing I came up with was uh, it's hard. To not dislike greatness when you know what play they're going to run and they still beat you nine out of ten times with that play. Yeah. You know who's <laughs> going to get the ball where, when, what they're going to do with yeah. it, and they still beat yeah. you. That's, you're quick to dislike someone that that can say, hey, uh, I'm going to show you my cards and still beat you at poker. Right. Uh, and that, right. That, that, that's uh, that attitude, you Just that response from Coach Sloan to say, yeah, we'll just go out and do it better even though they you know what we're going to do. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. That's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty telling of Jerry to to say that. You know, you talk about fans and why we have this reputation. You know, my view, having traveled with the team a little bit and seen games in other arenas, all fans are pretty crazy. I mean, wherever I've been, um, fans have been just about as vocal as as the Jazz fans and um, and and pretty um, pretty serious about their team. I think there's a couple of things that might separate us from some other teams. Um, One is when uh, Larry Miller built the arena, he really built it for basketball and a lot of arenas more now, but a lot of arenas in history have not been built just for basketball. They've been built for basketball and hockey and other events. So uh, sound is not as, as, as great as it is in our arena. And the fact that, those uh, seats are pretty vertical and sit over the the court. That sound really carries down to all the players. So we just by the way it's built, we're a noisier arena. I think the other thing that's kind of interesting is that oh, we had to fight pretty hard to get a, a, a team here. Um, I, I really against the NBA's wishes. Stern said, "Don't don't move to don't move New Orleans to Utah. You'll never make it." Mm. And um, there were there were several years there when it looked like maybe we would be not able to, to survive. I think the fans rallied around that, and uh, I think they've been there ever since. So I think yeah. I think there's just a little bit in our history that, that uh, make us uh, great
0: fans. <laughs> How much lo- sleep are you still losing over the way that uh, one Dick Pavetta called a certain finals game? <laughs> Because I, I tell you tell what, you- man, I had to skip it. I had to skip that part of the doc series. I can't watch it. I get, I get my blood just boils, and I, I need uh, medical help. It's so re- egregious.
2: Well, it really is, and uh, I'll tell you a couple things that, that that really point to that being not just our perception, but the the perception of uh, people everywhere. Um, first, though, I remember uh, Frank Leighton saying. I'll never forgive Dick Bavetta for that. I'll never forgive He said Bavetta came up to him and, and apologized. And he mm. said, I, I can't forgive him. I just can't forgive him. Eventually, I think he did. I think he finally said, yeah, you know what, um, I forgave him. But um, you know, the other thing that happened that I that I thought was interesting is that somebody sent me uh, a clipping, and I have I've lost the clipping now. Uh, but the clipping was either Washington Post or Boston. It was a New It was an East Coast paper. New York, Boston, uh, Washington. Uh, it was a major paper, and the headline was uh, "Jazz the better team, done in by the refs." <laughs> and that was an actual story written by a reporter back east uh, uh, about uh, his view of the game. And he just went through those calls. And when you look at it, you know there's Idley's missed three-pointer. Uh, I mean, made three-pointer that, that Bavetta waived. Mm-hmm. And then Harper made a two-point shot that was clearly shot after the the 24-second clock. Uh, and then there's the push-off uh, debate. I mean, that's seven points right there uh, that really costs us some momentum. Uh, at least the five points really cost us momentum. And then, of course, you can debate the push-off. Mm. It's interesting to me in the documentary the angle they showed in the documentary was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And it didn't show the push-off quite as well. It, it was more of a... It did look like he just kind of stuck his hand out. But on certain angles, you can look at that and you can tell he pushed uh, He pushed Russell. So um, I, I really think that uh, uh, we got some bad breaks. That yeah. that's, <laughs> that still hurts and I'm sure when Stockton and Malone and Hornacek, all those guys think about it, that hurts them too. I mean, that's got to be... Um, uh, You, you want to you get fair treatment.
0: Yep. You, you work your entire career, and in one moment, uh, a referee's mistake costs you. And, you, and yeah. you, there are those that would say, well, you don't know. If he allows Isley's shot, you don't know that the game exactly would have played out, how it played out after that. No. We don't, but it's still something to point to and go, that was out of their control, and it cost them five, possibly, as you mentioned, seven points. That's a big deal that changes yeah, things and,
2: and you know you played the rest of the game with um, those things in the back of your mind and wondering if, it, if you're going to get nailed again if you're going to get mistreated again by the refs so yeah. it, it just it just really was unfortunate
0: you can find Mike's book Long Shots and Layups uh, Memories and Stories from the Golden Era of the Utah Jazz on Amazon in both hardcover and paperback and Mike I believe you have a website as well don't you?
2: I have a website, it's just uh, longshotsandlayups.com, and it gives you a, a, a little bit about the book as well as some stories and some, some uh, excerpts so you can get a feel for if, if it's something you'd like. It's also at King's English, and uh, at um, it's in Trolley Square and a few other bookstores uh, uh, as well. Weller's Book Works in, in Trolley, and... King's English in uh, Sugar House and, and a few other bookstores, but but it is on Amazon and on my website.
0: And I believe the foreword is written by uh, Jerry Sloan, is it not?
2: Jerry, yep. Jerry uh, was kind enough to do that, and uh, um, uh, he, he was um, he's a he's a wonderful guy. Boy, I uh, uh, total respect for Jerry and everything he did, and um, I know he's he's um, uh, not extremely well now not doing great i talked to actually talked to tammy uh about a week ago and so um it's a tough time for uh for jerry um but what a great man he uh he is and and uh always was
0: agreed well mike it's, it's always fun to talk with you my friend and uh, let's do it again soon will we? Austin?
2: yeah it's a pleasure thank you for having me and uh, uh stay healthy and stay safe and we'll, we'll talk soon
0: there you go. That's Mike Snar, Michael G. Snar, for those uh, counting uh, the, 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 the official score uh, for uh, Long Shots and Layups. Uh, the book, you can find it on Amazon or, like he said, longshotsandlayups.com. Good guy. Great memories. Fun to always reminisce about, as he named it, the golden era of the Utah Jazz. Well, we have another one coming around. Uh, I've talked with Mike in the past about the similarities this team has uh, with the, their core pieces compared to the core pieces back then. I don't think you can replicate a, a Stockton and Malone, Hornacek, uh, Sloan type of core, but I uh, or you can't duplicate it, I should say, but I think you can replicate it, and I think Quinn Snyder might have what it takes to do that. We'll see what time will tell. All right, that's going to do it for a Thursday edition of the EP Podcast. We'll catch you on a Wear Red Friday tomorrow. I'm Austin Horton, and until then, be good to each other. Now for the laugh of the day. <laughs>
3: Mike, my name is Tom BS MBA patent inventor I'm also a professional photographer and microphotographer Um, Well, I'm the best of the best. I'm, I'm about to come into big money. I mean huge, but I have some temporary, maybe full uh, permanent uh, part-time working uh, necessities. I, I don't need to make much. Um, I don't live on much. I don't really like money. I mean, we all like money, but uh, my phone number is 3. I'm very well educated and thought of. I'm incredibly smart. I'm a genius. Um, <laughs> um, people who study people like me think I might be one of the smartest people in the country. Anyhow, I have a lot of powerful friends, and uh, they won't be entered into politics soon. But, my point is, I need to make you know about a hundred or two a week, and i'll do anything i'll shovel <laughs> i'll analyze stock values. I can do anything and have um, I have an education that would blow your arm off if you look at the resume, but my computer's down, and I'm just looking for some immediate part-time only. I can only make 1000 a month, I believe it is. I'm on disability. Um, I don't even look disabled. I'm terminally ill. <laughs> I've been that way six years, three months to live. I don't look sick. Young women love me, and according to them, I'm hysterical and the smartest man i <laughs> ever met, and I look good. That's a problem. Um, please give me a call. Again, my number is 533. That's a new number for me. It's my home number. Um, thank you. Bye-bye.